So this podcast is presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics an easy-to-access set of resources and educational materials wherever they are. So feel free to take a look at the description in the footnotes of the podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do and just how much content we put out there for your education. Many thanks. And so, hi guys, uh, we're back with uh, another episode of the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast. This is a continuation of what we've been talking about, about uh, family witness resuscitation, can't say that word, resuscitation, um, and also breaking bad news, and just digging down into the minutiae of how we both deal with and mitigate some of the stressful circumstances, which actually is some of the most difficult communication I think a paramedic has to face on scene. But um, but so yeah, so Rich is here with me. Uh, afternoon, guys. Hello. And uh, and Nick Brown is still here with us. It's like I've never been away. It's yeah. like he's never been away. Never been away. <laughs> it's like he's always been here, um, trapped in the basement with us. <laughs> <laughs> so Rich, I hand it over to you. Yeah. Hi, Nick. Um, thanks for staying right. and talking. This is a fascinating topic, and I think we just it, it's just too much to cover in one podcast. So yeah, thank you so for staying really. and chatting. Um, so it's a of, whole module, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Is that at least a whole module? Yeah, it's a whole module. Yeah. So you, you kind of took us through earlier with your, your four stage approach to how you, you sort of mm. deal with families in, in a resuscitation environment, which is brilliant. It's great. Um, but I guess what uh, so we want to approach now is how we how we model this behaviour and how we then teach this to to staff, sort of either newly qualified or staff that have never done it before. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Is sort of the best ways to for when you're not there, how do you how do we get staff up to sort of that level who maybe don't do this very often? Mm. How do we sort of help them in this process to make sure that the family's experience of this is is consistently good? Mm. Yeah, I think really it needs to be introduced in educational programs. Mm. Um, that for the most part these days is you know high red, um, but also in you know lo- local training centres. You know it's very hard to impress upon someone on scene the importance of this if it's a wholly new concept yeah um so i think uh, it's interesting I, I gave a chat to um some students at surrey or sussex it was um university a little while ago and the paper that i wrote was on their um module or, or semester kind of reading uh, and that was good to see mm. um yeah i mean i guess Rightly so, the emphasis in terms of cardiac arrest is on the clinical care and many hours will be spent learning the anatomy, physiology, pathology, etiology and other ologies as well as um, honing psychomotor skills as well. Um, But there probably needs to be um, some space for less sterile clinical um, moulages, if you like, scenarios, and actually build in, you know, factors where you have people role playing yeah. relatives. Um, there's a certain art to that because it, it, it is a fine. I mean, it only goes go for so far as well. We all know the sort of limitations of uh, moulages and, and running scenarios. But nevertheless, to introduce concepts would be a good idea. I think you know to teach an approach. Um, you know, a, a modelled approach would be a good thing, but I'm not so much in favour of strictly applying that or feeling like you've got to strictly apply that to, you know, every single scenario. Um, but certainly on scene, um, 
Yeah, a number of options. I mean, sometimes I lead on breaking bad news. I do try to encourage you know other staff and particularly students. And 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 frequently I'm asked if um, you know can I come along and see what you do. Um, and I do try to actually broadly, briefly cover what we're trying to do before we go and engage the family. And then either we sort of share that load or, you know, they do it and I, you know, sort of am there to support. I'm actually in favour of, you know, if, the, if, if there is capacity um, in having two people approach the family. Although I generally think that probably one person talking is a good yeah. idea, um, perhaps for obvious reasons. Um, but certainly there is some sort of moral support there, um, you know, in numbers. Um, do you think, sort of from an education point of view, do you think we're, perhaps we find this topic uncomfortable? So as and we've, we're all, we've all worked as educators, we do, do, we do take part in higher education training and mm. station-based training and, and we facilitate that. Do you think there's perhaps a bit of uncomfortable if that's a word, around acknowledging as paramedics and as a profession we deal with death a lot more than perhaps we think we do. And then we then tend to shy away from teaching about it or so we just don't know how to teach it? Um, yes, well, I mean, going back to the, the you know, lack of literature on the subject itself, I mean, it, what, you know, there is... Um, it seems to indicate that, you know, supporting families during resuscitation is a good thing. There is benefit. Um, and some of the health practitioner concerns that we touched on with the last episode in terms of, you know, relatives confounding the clinical care or risk of sort of medical legal kind of um, claims, you know, is seems to be unfounded. Um, but um, yeah, so, so there's not a lot out there initially to sort of ground you in taking some teaching forward. But I think perhaps as well, it's just not seen as the, you know, dare I say it, um, the, 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 the sexy side of, so, of, yeah. of, 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 you know, what we do, you know, um, people, the paramedics, you know, really need to avoid the trap of thinking that, um, and I think we probably know this as advanced uh, practitioners, that, you know, we are summed up by, you know, what we carry in our bag and how much plastic we can shove into a human body or drugs for that matter or what you know diagnostics we carry and and of course when people approach us and say you know what do you what do you do that's what they want to know about but actually hopefully what we all do is say we talk about critical thinking and decision making you know and having you know awareness of human factors because we know that that's an imperative before we come on to um, and certainly in terms of cardiac arrest let's be honest there's very little evidence yeah. other than you know pushing an appropriate speed and depth on the chest and pressing a shot button um, so um, yes, I think probably it's not seen as you know. It's not the sexy side. I think that's a really yeah. good, it's a really good point actually because I think yeah, your main experience with family and relatives and things is in the aftermath of, of, of someone being unwell. Very seldom do I talk about how amazing someone someone was when they put a cannula mm. into someone. It is about how kind they were, how they came across. They were really nice. They were good, and you you get that that good that medical confidence actually often comes when you think about it from absolutely no basis in what I saw medically going on. It does mm. come from how they made me feel. Mm. Yes, yeah. Um, I think it's about building rapport quite quickly yeah. as well and how you build rapport, how you communicate with patients um, and how you um, how you de-escalate uh, in, in that scene. And so you're right, it's very much the non-technical aspect. You're right, and I agree with both of what you're saying, it's very much the unseen 
part of a part of the role really and it's mm. not something you can showcase to people by opening a bag like quite right mm. as you said um and it's but it is the most vital part because it is what relatives remember yeah um, and sure. it's also um it, it also mitigates a lot of stress we talk about meta programs and how you know everyone's got a meta program these subconscious subconscious programs for brushing their teeth putting their clothes on um, washing every day but no one really has got a meta program for death because mm. they don't run that program every day therefore what how what you say and how you say it mm. will stick with them for the rest of rest of their lives really yeah. and and it's really prudent to acknowledge that and little anchors that the subconscious anchors that people drop you know the, the the music or the sounds or the smells or your tonality will will bring them right back to that moment. Mm. So it's so key that I, like you said that, you, that we get it right. But Nick, that leads me on to mm. and Rich. That leads me on to um, just a question I'll pose to you both really, uh, which is you know just about de-escalation techniques and if you guys either of you really got any pearls of wisdom about how to either de-escalate family members or actually and and also de-escalate staff members. To, to de-escalate other paramedics because certainly part of my de-escalation in the past has had to be towards other colleagues that feel mm. completely stressed out but have either of you got any sort of I guess I've got one kind of gem of or pearl of wisdom that I try and impart on people when uh, when I talk about this and it's actually is to try and avoid it escalating in the first place and I'll, I'll give you an example of where, where I made an error that, that escalated a scene uh, when they were so I was unaware of what family members were on scene uh, I knew of the patient's wife and the patient's mother-in-law what I didn't realize was there were young sort of teenage children on scene and when I came to to deliver the death message and to to, to talk about what would happen next and I'd been in contact with, with both adults frequently when I came downstairs to do the final message I was met by four people and I was expecting two and it threw me entirely uh, and it meant my next steps weren't what I expected, um, and I lost control a bit of that scene because then it escalated with a lot of with all the aspects that you were talking about earlier, with the begging, the crying, mm. grabbing onto my leg, and as soon as that happened, I had an emotional response, and it became mm. really difficult for me to then can, to sort of help de-escalate them. Um, and so I think one of the things you perhaps I learned from that, took away from that, was when I do talk to relatives, ask who else is here, and who else is coming, because. Yeah. You know, people can arrive very quickly on scene and you can you can go away from a relative's room or the room they're in to go back to the patient and come back and there's 20 or 30 people there that weren't there originally. Yeah. And I think for me, that's a lot of that. It's actually, you know, you, you made that point really early about knowing who you're talking to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think knowing who you're talking to, who you might be talking to a little bit, is really helpful. So I write their name on my glove. Yeah, I, 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 so I write the name of the person I'm talking to on the inside of my glove. So because... I know how forgetful I can be, mm, yeah. uh, and, and so I'll write the patient's name on my glove, and I'll write also write the name of the person I'm talking to. Yeah. But it's the but when I'm referring to the patient, being the person that either in the past tense or present tense, I will write their name on my glove because the worst thing in the world is to forget the name yeah. of the patient, and and, and and skirt around that. So yeah, I think yeah. just cognitively offload mm. that. Is but yeah, but I agree with you. Just contextualizing who you're talking to and yeah. and, and and how many people you'll be talking yeah. to. But go on, Nick. Have you, have you got any? I'm sure you've. No, I would. I would reiterate that actually. You know, it's often I, I do tend to think, as most people do, that I'm the worst person at remembering names, and you hear that said a lot. But we are trying to remember names 
at the worst possible yeah. time to remember a name. We have the biggest you stress know. load, and actually names aren't the thing. <laughs> Our bandwidth is, yeah. <laughs> is so full, and yeah, now we've got to sort of remember, you know, some of the, and particularly, of course, when, you know, the, the name is challenging, or, um, I mean, I'm often calling, you know, patients, you know, the name of the person. The person, previous patient. The paramedic yeah, who's yeah. just been speaking yeah. to, and so on. Um, but actually, whilst we're on names, and thinking about sort of top tips for de-escalation, I think certainly, do use your name at least um, and, and, and connect with people, as we've said. Um, do say that you're you know, a paramedic. Give your, give, give your um, title because I think that there's power in that. You know, you're showing you know, competence and you know, taking charge. Um, I think um, so often I think it's hard to get things, a bit like you're saying, Rich, get things back on track once they've slipped. So if you go in, you know, if you try to get things right from the start, then there's more chance that you know things will you know follow um, logically, um, and sometimes that involves, which seems counterintuitive at a cardiac arrest when time is imperative, but the slowing down you know um, to speed up, allowing yourself some moments to think um, before you move on to the next stage. Um, I think in terms of dealing with family, you know, be truthful, mm. um, or, or at least yeah. don't lie. Yeah. Um, um, is is really important um, and I think you know it's almost better to say I don't know that yet yeah, and, and yeah. of course the question that they always want to know is why is this happening yeah, they're trying happened? to yeah. some people like, we, we sort of talked about the different sort of approaches the stoic the stun the animated but um, there are very many times where we've all been asked you know what how has this happened they're already trying to rationalize it yeah and, and we don't always know that of course sometimes it's obvious but sometimes it's not and I think one of the things is to reassure them that, you know, to some extent, you know, it doesn't matter because the, what we're doing, you know, isn't necessarily hugely impacted about, about you know, how, you know, the, the, the how bit, I suppose. Um, I think encourage questions, you know, so do you have any questions? Again, you know, and, and often you don't, but again, it's that sort of like, you know, tomorrow, next week, next month, you know, we had the opportunity, it, you know, you're conveying something of yourself, um, you know, when you're, when you're asking somebody if they do have a question they want to ask. Um, okay, controversial one, uh, actually two controversial ones, well so perhaps good. one less than the other. <laughs> we, we like controversy, we go do, on. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. go on. So, um, personally, um, I wouldn't be too afraid of, pers of, of physical contact, yeah. of touching okay. people. Um, I, I had this one um, uh, cardiac arrest that I attended some time ago where the, the, the gentleman was elderly. He was a uh, black African uh, male and that perhaps had some bearing in terms of the cultural sort of response that I had afterwards. Um, but talking about, you know, 20 family members turning out rich, well, there was about 40 by the time yeah. we'd, you yeah. know, declared the patient dead. And very accepting of the decision. But I got hugged and embraced by every single one yeah. in, in quite a powerful way. Um, now, that's, it's worth thinking about. And there will be some people listening thinking that's, you know, their idea of hell. Um, I mean, I certainly... Um, it, it's, it's not overly... I'm not overly comfortable, I have to be honest now. It, 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 no, yeah. no. I mean, I, I went with it, of course. Um, but, but actually, sometimes, you know, and perhaps thinking more generally, you know, a hand on the shoulder... Um, 
touch I think probably is most powerful for me when we're again moving on to another podcast when we're with ABD patients yeah. you know and thinking about managing the environment yeah. before we start you know pulling out you know an antipsychotic or a benzo but um, actually you know an appropriate you know touch so I guess, I guess yeah something we could spend a lot of time talking about what's appropriate deeply, um, deeply human about contact it's that like contact thing yeah, yes yeah, you know yeah. my name is Nick you know yeah. and you know it, you know, I'm here to look after you hand on the shoulder and you can do that with relatives I think yeah, yeah. But you have to be a bit careful. And again, you know, I think, you know, you weigh up lots of factors and the scene. And I, I, I dare say that I don't probably make the first move in terms of, you know... I, think I agree, contact, yeah, I agree. Um, I let them, yeah. But nevertheless... You've got to gauge your audience correct with that, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of breaking bad news, my, my, my second um, potentially controversial um, top tip is don't talk about God. Okay. Yeah. Um... So I've got. I mean, that's a really that's well. So I think that's probably more controversial than the first topic, the first point. But yeah, I think I think this is a really good point. It was something I was going to ask actually, mm. because often you're you're approached or you, you come into contact with in depth situations with people's beliefs. Obviously, now yeah. working in London, those beliefs can be one of a hundred different religions forming different ways and different aspects. So, so let me give you yeah. this um, as a, as a as a real story. Um, I'm attending a cardiac arrest in a Muslim household um, and we come to the uh, recognition of life extinct decision and one of the paramedics on scene announces to the closest relative that the patient's soul is in the arms of Jesus. Okay. So um, as it happens that I think, you know, wasn't received as badly as it could have been. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anywhere that I'm aware of uh, in terms of paramedic guidance um, of addressing the metaphysical. And I think we have to be focused on, you know, dealing with uh, matter. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is obviously trying to resuscitate a patient successfully back to, you know, an, an animated form. Um, eventually, um, uh, or dealing with you know the the body as it belonged to that person. Um, I think once you get into the realms of um, you know speculating on what happened in the afterlife, then that that's not always that helpful. And for some people, you know, it, it's uh, you're assuming what's comforting to someone. Yeah. You know, is it comforting mm -hmm. to think that this person is, you know, in a in a in a happy place um, or another place? Well, that also opens up the realm of well, perhaps they haven't gone to the happy place. Perhaps yeah. they've gone to the horrible place. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, it's more comforting for me to think that you know, when I die, that is it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's no sort of you know judgment and I guess or being sent here or there. It's up to the relatives to and what's that look like? to grieve and to mourn and to yeah. think of in their own way of what happens next, isn't it? I think it's 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 perhaps even the height of arrogance of us to assume that what we believe is what yeah. they will believe. Now that's not stopped me from saying you know um, uh, is you know in terms of like ongoing support you know is there, particularly in a house where you can see there's overt reference you know to a you know um, I don't imam or priest or vicar or um, and in fact the example that I gave you from from the job in South London the last episode it was probably I suppose you know I, I, I'm, I'm sort of sticking my neck out but I'd say probably they were sort of a more um, liberal moderate Muslim uh, family um, and I spent a lot of time talking to the son after the job 
Um, the family wanted me to talk to him because he was blaming himself for not being able to, you know, bring his dad back as he saw it with chest compressions. Um, and we spoke about, you know, support and help. And, and indeed, you know, um, we spoke about the, the support and help that he could get from, you know, his sort of religious community. But I think once you leap in there with your assumptions about the afterlife, there is the potential to cause offence. I've got probably three stories I haven't got enough time to tell yeah. where, um, you know, that's probably the most overt, um, you know, example in terms of what was said but others where there was clear uncomfortability yeah. when um, healthcare practitioners on the scene made suggestions of where that person's soul uh, yeah. might be now and i wonder if we in that particular instance and also just sort of generally when we when we do that and we impart our beliefs perhaps on what's going on that in some essence is, is a way of that practitioner removing the stress of the situation from themselves uh, finding comfort for themselves yeah. in, in what's clearly a, a, you know, an uncomfortable scene, a lot of emotion, which very, it's like I've done this before. Brings me on <laughs> to my, this sort of question, actually, how then do we, how do you mitigate against the stress of these scenes? Um, clearly without imparting your own beliefs on a patient, but what sort of in, so you've talked a lot about the weeks, the days, the months after for the relatives, which I think is fantastic. Uh, and it's actually a perspective I've not thought of before, having known you and talked to you a lot about this subject, actually. Yeah. That's something I've learned today really yeah. and that is to think in that way which is great but what about you us the profession days weeks months after yeah. how do we mitigate that or how do you sure um i think we it's interesting isn't it where, where does stress come from um it's hard to pinpoint i mean of all that we've all you know a huge experience in terms of dealing with cardiac arrest and i bet that we'll be hard pushed to think of well how many cardiac arrests can you would you be able to readily recall I, I might mm. five probably straight off. Yeah, Once yeah. we get in towards ten, yeah. I'd be struggling. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it's probably the worst ones that you. There are the ones that there is a salient point that you remember, yeah. and yeah. they 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 stick with you, and the rest. So one of the things I'm often I often hear is you know how do you you know cope with going so many cardiac arrests and the stress involved with that? Well, stress is an interesting thing. I was more stressed in a previous job where I had operational supervisory. Mm. Uh, role and um, and actually organisational stress caused me far more sleepless nights yeah. than than did. Um, so it is interesting where it comes from. I think mostly um, dealing with it's not the body on the floor, is it? It's dealing with the going yes. back to families. Yeah. It's their reaction and knowing the suffering that they'll be going through um, in the days, weeks, and months. That's that's kind of where it comes from. I think there can be. A lot of benefit in knowing that we have done our best so it's worth you know as i say you know training hard you know getting the experience we can do and getting the governance to sort of you know and thinking about you know our actions in a cardiac arrest scenario as indeed you know being mindful of all that we do so that we can come away thinking you know we've done our best and actually if we haven't then what lessons have we learned for for next time and um, let's be honest you know most of our hard one lessons haven't come about just from reading something going, yeah. oh I get that now I'll, I'll employ it every time I it's usually from a, it's, well quite often from a mistake um, I think it was also you know we have to and I do try to remind staff you know on debriefs we have to be aware of how exceptional and challenging this job is mm. you know um, to take staff that you know go from A levels to university with a bit of mentoring and putting them in these pre-hospital environments where there is, you know, so many factors to juggle, um, so many stresses, dealing with families, dealing with other environmental factors, um, safety issues, 
coming up with working diagnoses, um, treating, conveying, discharging. Um, it, it's a tall order. And, you know, when you think that we do, you know, the average paramedic does not many, whatever number we're saying, cardiac arrests per year. It's, it's you know, a significant undertaking. And I think in doing that, you give yourself a bit of a break, you know, um, in terms of putting all that pressure on you. And, you know, you, you can perhaps alleviate it in that way. Um, I, I did a, um, a job only a few days ago, actually, with another advanced paramedic. Um, during a debrief, it was a big job, involved lots of um, staff. And in the back of the ambulance, one of the things that she said was, um, was to talk about the three-day rule. And I don't think I'd heard it articulated in that way before, but, you know, essentially, bottom line, you know, I'm going to think about it tonight. I'm going to think about it tomorrow. It'll probably be that it doesn't dominate my thoughts on day two. And by day three, you know, it'll be starting to fade a bit and I'll be getting on. Beyond that, you might think, well, if it's still like it was, you know, we're on your drive home from your first shift, perhaps, you know, you need to think about doing something about that. Now, for the most time, you know, that will be talking to our crewmates. And I think it's what's useful, and it's difficult if you're a relief member of staff and you don't work with the same sort of crewmate each day, but to have good, strong working relationships as, as foundation so that you can go to people that understand the job, understand the pressures and strains. You know, when you're telling the story, they're there too, uh, in their mind's eye. Um, I think that is where most people draw their support from rather than, you know, rush off to the council yeah. after dealing with, you know, upset relatives. Um, I think a good debrief is important, but it, but it can be, you know, and it's something that, you know, if you're leading a cardiac arrest, um, you know, we need to be able to do. Um, it can be challenging for people to speak their mind. They're in the back of the ambulance after the job. And often I've collared someone, you know, separately to one side and asked them, you know, if they're all right. Um, and uh, yeah, as I say, you, you need to be real um, about your emotions and not, you know, hide those away. Um, and to some extent, figure out what's work, what works for you. We're all very, you know, keen to come up with some sort of formula that we can apply to everybody. But, you know, what might work for you guys, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? As, as paramedics, we like to, you, you, well, as, as clinicians in any, in any form, you like the cure for things, don't you? But, yeah. but, but the cure, cures for a lot of, a lot of things are, uh, and, and aren't simple and they're, they're person-specific, aren't they? And I think, for me, one of the things, that, that kind of three-day rule, I tend to extend it to a week for me personally. So if I'm, by the end <laughs> yeah, of my run sure. of shifts of a week, if I'm still, if I'm still thinking of, of that patient in the same way I was before, if I'm still talking to colleagues about that call, still questioning my treatment, my judgment, things like that, then maybe I need to talk a bit more on a, a non-clinical level about mm. why that, or at least look myself as to why I'm still talking about it from a clinical level. And I think part of, for me, sort of, I guess, my growing as a, as a person, oh, it's got very serious now, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and as a clinician, is, is part of understanding my emotional response to things mm. and understanding it's there and understanding that it's okay that it's there. Uh, we, we are all human beings and that comes with emotions and it comes with an emotional response and that's normal. Mm. Um, thinking that it isn't normal, I think, is what leads us down the wrong path sometimes mm -hmm. and leads stress, sees us to stress where there doesn't need to be. 
I agree. I agree with both of you, really. And I think uh, it's it's it is accepting yourself. It's being kind to yourself. Yeah. And it's also like say externally processing. Just what Nick was saying about externally processing it with with your crewmate or externally processing it sometimes with your partner. And actually, just talking it out. It's like you know when I used to do the clinical support desk or even some some of the stuff we do as advanced paramedics. When when you're listening to another paramedic on the phone. Um, unfolding a case in front of you, it comes to its natural conclusion once they talk it out. Yes. And just the process of talking it out just unpacks it for you to make sense of it a little bit more. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And if you actually, I mean, you're, you're drawing on some, some good psychology there. It's how we declutter mm. our minds. We articulate them, um, you know, our thoughts. And we, and we actually end up with a narrative that makes sense. We've got to go up a lot of blind alleys and repeat ourselves and contradict ourselves and that's okay in order to come up with something coherent that we can and that's a lot of it actually it's making sense if you can so a lot of the debrief actually is 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 trying as i see it is is making sense of events because we struggle when we can't make sense because that's 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 chaos and we don't like chaos generally um we have to walk the line between sort of chaos and order and um i think talking things through helps facilitate absolutely absolutely 100 percent. so one of the things i do really um to try and de-escalate some of my our colleagues on scene i think sometimes is because it's all non-verbal isn't it you can i think uh, the, the the huge and you alluded to it earlier actually you step on scene and it's almost what's not said which you gather more information from and it's the it's a look of, it's a look of the paramedics faces from when when they're handing over to you or when they're dealing with the scene it's a look of the family mm. uh, it, and then it's some of the tonality of the of the communication mm. so actually sometimes that's far more telling than actually what's being said and so yeah, what sure. i will do is purposely slow my communication down mm. um, i will in a, in in try and calm my tonality down so because nonverbal communication is 55% Tonality is thirty-five percent, and the rest is. Who came up with those statistics? Oh, well, I, you I always hear that, don't you? Ninety-five percent of the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's all statistics. It's all statistics. Yeah. Term, yeah. Um, but no, so, we know it's 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 powerful, isn't it? It's yeah. really powerful, really powerful. And then and Body then I think doing something which is done more and more frequently now. I'd be interested to see if you guys see it. But it's sharing that mental model, and whether if it's not been done, really just taking a little bit of a time out taking the, sort of the next 10 mm. seconds for the next 10 minutes, the 10 for 10, just to really reevaluate where we are as a team. Mm. And actually reassure your colleagues on scene that everything is being done. And actually what that does is de-escalates, hopefully, in their minds. But what it also does is it, it frees then my bandwidth up to see A, what needs to be done straight away, and B, when can I get to the relative? I think, so... Uh, and any relative waiting in the ring wings can can see that. Can see I that, think yeah. there is you know power in you know a well run resus, yes. not least yeah. because that's right for the patient and that brings order to the scene and in the minds of you know practitioners that you're you know overseeing, um, and of course you know the empowerment that you give them to do that. Yeah. But it also yeah from the from the relatives who might be witnessing um, you know. It, you know, it's comfort to them, if not at the time, yeah. then in the days, weeks, months, years ahead. Yeah, yeah I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's, um, from, from all points of view, when, when you, you talk about sort of the stress and taking things away uh, and emotionally how you deal with things, I think we all, we all come away 
in a better place uh, with less questions of what if I had have done this, what if, what if. Um, yeah. For relatives, that's especially true. So mm-hmm. what if? Mm-hmm. What if I'd have noticed sooner? What if I'd have called earlier? What if? Yeah. Been, you know, and the last thing we want is for that what if to be about us as professionals. Mm-hmm. So seeing that order, that mm-hmm. run, having that, that leadership mm-hmm. um, and having that calm sort of resuscitation going on, that they witness and they see and they're also part of, mm-hmm. I think helps to alleviate that what if. Yeah. They know the answer to the what if isn't, well, there is no what if. Yeah. Because yeah. actually everything that could have been done was done. Was done. You, you just, just um, reminded me of something actually, Rich, with the what if, I think, um, which is quite pertinent to, to dealing with families and thinking about them sort of, you know, beyond the, the, the immediacy. Um, so often the scenario will play out that we've delivered bad news and when the relatives have had time to think about their actions, they ask you, you know, could I have done anything else? And of course, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, there will be some times when we can think, well, actually something could have been done that wasn't done. But rather than being brutally truthful, I think I often try to remind them that the event was catastrophic, you know, and couldn't have been predicted and focus on what they did do. Yeah. Um, and, and even if it's, that's just, you know, dialing 999 and us being able to get there quickly mm. rather than saying, well, you know, you could have gone, you know, a couple of centimetres deeper and not had them on the bed. Yeah. Um, so it's a tricky one. Um, but, you know, we, we and this is going back to, you know, how, how we can sort of get better at doing this. You know, we have to sort of, um, in training processes, um, Think about these sorts of questions that might come up. Simulate these questions. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You're right, because anywhere we get better, because these are really difficult questions to answer, really emotional situations. Yeah. And the only way you really get get good at that is is by, like you say, by be, becoming experienced. Mm. And actually, we we can't send paramedics routinely to more cardiac arrest to, to get that experience. So we have to somehow give them that through our own experience and learning, perhaps with things like this, but actually on a more formal education way by simulating that sort of environment, don't we, and those questions. Yeah. Uh, so that you've got perhaps you've got a preloaded answer almost. I think it is useful to have these off-the-shelf comments that don't take up a lot of bandwidth to think about at a time. And, and I go back to this, you know, when you first, you know, enter the scene, being able to say, well, who you know, who you are, what your name is, you know, what you need to do, promise of an update, that sort of thing. Um, I'm less keen. I'm less keen. I have to say on on formal models. I mean, and there are a number of them out there. There's the the grieving one. I think for me to try to remember, you know, what the letters of an acronym mean yeah. at the time. Yes. That, like, you know, I mean, I suppose one option is that, you know, before you speak to the relatives, you pull it out of your pocket and, and have a look to make sure you've covered things. That's an option, but um, trying to remember off the cuff what the first I is and not the second I. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let alone. Yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, some, I think sometimes they can give you an awareness of what needs to be covered. Um, but actually, if you're going to employ an acronym, you you know you you need to already have it in your head and not in certain situations, and that's one of them, and not be reading it off of a card in front of relatives, yeah. um, because that just has this disingenuous kind of look about it. Um, but th- there are probably some out there that are worth looking at just so you're aware of some of the areas that, you know, uh, need to be covered in the whole, you know, arena of, you know, supporting families and breaking bad news. Yeah, we can, we can put those in the show notes. Actually, what I might do in the show notes, if it's okay with you, Nick, is put your paper in the show notes. Yeah, of course, yeah. So that people can uh, refer to your paper, because I think it's good for a summary document to, to re-emphasise 
um, and we'll put a few more papers in the show notes around breaking bad news and um, and yeah just a few tools that people can employ and just a few tricks of the trade um, I think that's excellent an excellent uh, excellent overview really um, and just I resonate with everything you both said I think that um, we need to simulate it more um, I also think from personal experience that interestingly enough some of the um, some of the um, cancer patients in the oncology cases I've been to have been some of the most difficult cases because they're, they're, they they that could be another podcast absolutely <laughs> yeah. because yeah, they draw up a whole set of absolutely. their own unique absolutely yeah challenges. And, you know, and it can be super challenging um, but yeah, but just to bring back to a point you you said it's about realigning expectations from 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 a practitioner's level they're challenging technical jobs they're challenging non-technically as well mm. there's there's two very succinct challenges this is the technical challenges and we've all been caught up in those technical challenges about the airway mm. the, the chest compressions the 360 axis but then there's a whole subset of non-technical challenges i think where it comes to its nth degree and i was privy and witness to this um, a couple of weeks back and i couldn't i felt on reflection i couldn't do that much about it, it was there was a uh, a, a pediatric cardiac arrest two month old and the resource itself was 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 fraught with troubleshooting points that we had to troubleshoot. I could already I could already hear the, the mother screaming in the background, but because we really I really need to address some key fundamental airway and breathing issues um, around securing the airway and just getting good systematic chest compressions. I, I felt really bad that I couldn't get to the mother so quickly. Um, I think that it really typifies some of the hardest jobs, really, because your our bandwidth has been it has been increased on these jobs, and and I am so cognizant of of the family member, especially when it comes to kids, mm. because the second patient really is the mother and father, yeah. and not being able to get to them uh, when they're having a meltdown, understandably having a meltdown, because you're caught up in some of the technical skills, quite rightly so. I find it it's super challenging and I'm not sure there's an answer no there's not and these and, and this is part of my sort of issue with you know set sort of uh, algorithmic approaches that you know these jobs are so dynamic mm. you know we go to places we've never been before meet people we've never seen before and deal with specific clinical presentations that we never dealt with before although there is sort of generality you could say um, I think sometimes it's knowing you know you have a, it's useful to get a hierarchy in your head um, early on and in that situation, I mean, it sounds like you did the right thing. If you've got, you know, paediatric arrest and airway problems, that's a no-brainer. Um, usually, paediatric cardiac arrest do involve, um, a, you know, an AB problem. Um, I think offloading is something mm -hmm. that we need to sometimes do better at as lead uh, clinicians. And certainly, I mean, in London, we're quite lucky in terms of the number of resources that we throw, particularly at cardiac arrest, my God. Um, and our, you know, instant response officers or duty managers, um, operational managers, uh, as, as they're referred to sort of more generically, you know, perhaps are the best, you know, people on scene to provide that, you know, global overview, really staying on the clinical. Um, and, um, and deal with relatives yeah. um so it's yeah you know you have to be holistic don't you really yeah, yeah i think what well, i think the, the, the challenge comes for me and i think it's kind of alluded to in what you're saying i mean that, that there's you you walk into those scenarios as two people almost one is the paramedic advanced paramedic the, the clinician with 
the responsibility and the duty to deal with everything that comes with dealing with a cardiac arrest. And the other is the human being that's walked into the room uh, as a brother, a dad, uh, you know, or whatever. And a part of you will, will always, as much as you will try not to, will have empathy with what's going on. That's natural and that's normal. And those two people sometimes fight for primacy because you want to care for the emotional impact and the side of it. But at that time, you have other things you need to do as a professional. And it's balancing those two, I think, can be really stressful and difficult. And yeah. it's being kind to yourself, as you said, and saying, actually, I, I can't do this at the moment, so I have to do this, but I mm. will. I know it. I know it's there, and I'm going to come back to it. And I'm going to allow myself just a little bit of freedom to, to take that pressure off me and say, I know I can't do the, the human emotional bit just yet. And I think, Nick, you were alluding to it as well, that you, you know, you, you kind of, you talk to the family and say, I'm going to come and talk to you, but I need to just mm. do these first. <clears throat> yes, and they can get that. Yeah. You know, um, and, and when they can't, there are strategies that you can employ. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there are strategies that you can employ to, um, to, to, to move things on. And, and as I say, you know, in a, in a, in a paediatric cardiac arrest that I attended not so long ago, looking at the, um, the, the mother and saying, you know, again, who I am, what I do, what we need to do, you know, please help me, mm. you know, recruitment, because mm. um, we can't save their life, explicit, um, unless you move back a little bit. And it's that compromise. And, and, I mean, God, you know, tearing a parent away from, you know, a sick child is, you know, it's probably not even right to do, even if you could do it. So, you know, having them to one side, you know, holding a hand, they're seeing what you're doing, um, you know, seems sort of perfectly, you know, right and humane. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Tough and, jobs, aren't they? Yeah, tough jobs. Yeah, and it's a fascinating yeah. subject, really, isn't it, yeah. as to how we do better at this. Yeah, Because there is no fixed answer, and, and empirically you can't really gain data, can you? No, you no. <laughs> no. It becomes very... opinion, doesn't it, and it what does, we think yeah. we're doing well and what we think yeah. we're not doing well. Yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah, it's very, uh, you can't really draw any sort of hold. <laughs> um, yeah, hard and fast. Yeah, but I think I think just some of the fundamentals of what you're saying, uh, both guys, is really you know through experience, through through training, and through reflection, through governance. I think this is this is where you come to some of the ubiquitous principles you were talking about. So if we could just summarise, guys, um, for the listeners, just just really maybe five key take-home points um, for the listeners. Um, uh, and I'll start with maybe the first one, uh, which is just that really stuck in my mind from what you were saying, Nick and Rich, really is just be real. So be real with 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 other, with the relatives. Be real with the family. Um, and well, before that, clarify who you're talking to. But 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 be real because they'll see through anything um, you 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 uh, try to allude to, which is maybe not the truth. So be truthful and be real. Uh, with the right people, once you've clarified who they are. Yeah. What else would you um, say? So, uh, shall I do another one? Um, I think probably try to set foot on the right foot, as the, as the saying goes. It's really hard to claw back once things, not impossible, of course, um, really hard to claw back. I think, you know, get, going in with that introduction and with some sort of structure. Um, I think can help you move things along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, so I think, yeah, I guess for me, if you're going to, so when, you, when you're trying to deal with the relatives, I think, as I sort of just said, you can't, you can't be that human and that clinician necessarily at the same time. Sometimes you can. And if you need to split from one to the other, is to give yourself that cognitive offload. So find yourself a space within the resuscitation, if you can, once it's established. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got clinicians in there, you can offload some of the management to give you a bit of time and space then to go be the human being in a different room. Um, and give yourself that space rather than trying to rush both or do both at the same time because I think the stress levels are too high you won't achieve very much absolutely and I just think just something we're saying about externally processing it with a significant other be it your crewmate be it your partner be it your um, someone close to you a good friend um, just to get the frames of reference correct in your mind and it just helps you I think outwork some of that stress um, and like you said Nick be kind to yourself you know be kind to yourself and it's a learning process and no one comes to a resuscitation fully equipped with feeling overtly confident in breaking bad news or controlling the scene um, and I think so I, I think generically being kind to yourself um, just uh, and then just just one that's really quickly come to my mind I think what I try to do also is get people to sit down and I sit down with them at eye level. So I sit down with them at eye level and I think what that does is non-verbally gives them the, the impression. It may be no more time than it would be stood up, but it gives them the impression they have my sole attention. So mm-hmm. sitting down with someone, there was an empirical study of doctors, um, of GPs, and actually the patient's perception of you sitting down uh, gives them the non-verbal um, cues that you have their soul or they have your soul attempt, uh, attention. And I always try to do that, I think, wherever possible. So if you can sit down, it really gives them the impression that you they are the most important thing to you at that moment. So I would definitely try to do that at eye level so you're not speaking down or up to people. You're at eye level, uh, in their face, um, just really sitting um, with them. Mm. And and this is perhaps my sort of final word on the on the subject. Um, practice it, you know. Yeah. It, these things do take some practice. We can talk about it, and it all sounds very straightforward. Sat in the luxurious comfort of this basement. <laughs> if only we had a camera. <laughs> um, but actually, yeah, it would be nice to see this topic explored a bit more on education programs and scenarios run that not just take into consideration the rightfully so, the clinical aspects of care, but also the other stuff. Brilliant, guys. Brilliant. Listen, I think that's hugely beneficial, a hugely beneficial, and I think we've covered some really salient topics today. So thanks to, to Nick um, for really just taking the time out and sharing some personal stories as well. And, um, and so this is me and Rich signing off. Uh, good evening, morning, afternoon, whenever you're listening. Hope you have a good day. And good evening, morning and afternoon from me, and we'll speak to you soon. This podcast was presented by Owen Walker and Rich McGurr and any views we express are our own. And this is a Medics Academy podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide paramedics, nurses and doctors easy to access set of resources and education materials wherever you are. So take a look in the footnotes of this podcast and sign up to Medics Academy today to find out even more about what we do, how much content we put out there for your education.